Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, race and the police and the coverage of both. It's been a dizzying week. It's been a dizzying day. It's been a dizzying few hours as events seem to sort of build on each other hour by hour, much of it having to do with police and African-American community and protests and Trump and COVID, and it's all sort of coming together. A week ago, Alex Neeson, who's a staff writer at CJR, wrote a terrific piece that sort of tried to make sense of the Ahmed Arbery case, the Breonna Taylor case, and how the press in America covers Black deaths. I just want to quote a few sentences from that because it could really help frame how we think now going forward. She says, amid this upheaval, as an absence of reporting resources leads us to rely on reactive social media outcries, journalists cannot be left as the arbiters of whose lives matter. Twitter is not an adequate assignment editor. If we treat it that way, Black and other people of color will continue to suffer lethal consequences. What's amazing and terrifying is that um, since Alex wrote that piece, so much more has happened. As we've seen overnight, the Minneapolis police have have gone after protesters who were there to protest the death of George Floyd, who was an African-American man killed in police custody, and in the last few hours arrested a CNN reporter who was just there doing his job. The arrest was carried live on CNN. The governor later apologized. But it's so hard to make sense of this, and it's so important for us to think about how the press could be doing better. So I'm thrilled to be joined by Alex, who wrote that piece I just mentioned, and by Danielle Belton, who's the editor-in-chief of The Root. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Happy to be here. Alex, let's start with you. We talk, we have a we have a daily story meeting at CJR, and, and obviously this morning we were dominated by a discussion of all of this. And it's a lot to process, and it's a, and, and, and again, so much has happened since you wrote what I thought was a terrific He's sort of framing how the press should think about it. What have you seen in the last day or so about how the media has framed this that you think people need to focus on and do better at? I think there's been a bit of a shift. When I wrote that piece a week ago, um, and it's just, it feels like so much longer, I think that I was thinking about how the press is disseminating the video of George Floyd. Um, and the ways in which our decision to put that video on the air, on our websites, uh, spills over into how our readers behave on the internet. Um, I spent days dodging this video, um, whether I was reading news online or just, you know, casually scrolling through my various social media accounts. Um, and I think that the press severely underestimates its influence, particularly on non-Black people. I think that we were running the video as we have done for the last, you know, 10 years um, and other people take that as permission. And so they put it on their Instagram or they post it to their Twitter or they just send it to people uh, without prompt. And now, you know, just in just overnight, what I'm seeing is my concerns, I guess, are sort of evolving to include how we frame unrest. Um, And this is nothing new. We've been having these conversations for literally years. And I'm seeing a lot of use of the word violent in headlines, for example. 
um, the word looting um, and on TV broadcasts and, as well, just sort of descriptive words that are describing these protests um, that go beyond just using that word protest. The, the biggest trend, the, the biggest error is a lack of context. And for all of our hand-wringing about how important uh, journalists are at providing nuance to the public in confusing moments like this where the news is happening really, really quickly, um, I think we're not doing a good job at framing what we're seeing, this, this these protests, as a response. Um, what I'm seeing is people talk about this protest, about fires, about property damage as having as as happening sort of out of the blue when in fact mm-hmm. there's a long history um, in Minneapolis and across this country both of what we sometimes call civil disobedience or looting as a legitimate tactic uh, of protest and also of the violence inflicted on these communities that have pushed them to this point. Danielle, first thank you for coming on. Nice to meet you. Do you have any thoughts about uh, on Alex's point about how the sort of the the media is using these terms like violence as if as if that was the the first order of the story as opposed to looking at what it was that prompted the protests in the first place? Um, I really feel like the mainstream media, the wider media, um, has a tendency to focus on property damage and what they perceive as violence as opposed to the systemic problems that have plagued this country since its inception and how it polices and treats uh, Black people. Because the reality is, is that, you know, when newsrooms aren't, you know, diverse, when they don't reflect our society, um, reporters bring their own prejudices every day to their jobs, whether they want to admit that or not. And they bring their own prejudices and perceptions and biases And um, you can try to be impartial, but more than often, your viewpoint on the world will color your reporting and your perception of it. So if you don't have an understanding of systemic state-sponsored violence against Black people in this country, if you don't have a nuanced understanding of race and racial relations in this country, if you don't know the history of protest in America, then yeah, you're going to be like, oh, they looted the target. You know, like, oh, my God, I'm so upset about Target. Like, it just seems so strange to be so fixated on property damage and the fact Mm -hmm. that that gets more attention and the fact that a man is dead Mm -hmm. and our tax dollars paid for it. Mm -hmm. And why did that happen? And how did that happen? And how do we prevent it from happening again? Mm -hmm. Um, Because... One person's, you know, freedom fighter is another person's, you know, looter and rioter, you know, like Mm -hmm. you can go back to the Boston Tea Party and our perception of the Boston Tea Party is is quite positive in America, which was an act of civil disobedience and the destruction of property Mm -hmm. um, in order to, you know, make a statement about how we were feeling about, you know, colonialism and being part of the British Empire. And so... There is a just a long history of protests in the United States, but again, history is written by the victors. So you have like basically history has like almost a racial, racist kind of slant to it in America, where if white people take to the streets and protest mm-hmm. uh, for anything, whether it's about wearing a mask or not, whether it's about my sports team lost a game. I mean, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and in Carbondale, Illinois, like every year, 
the college students, the white college students at um, SIU Carbondale would uh, basically like run amok on Halloween and destroy parts of the town. Mm-hmm. And everyone just kind of like shrugs and goes, well, that's how life is. You know, people mm-hmm. have a right to express themselves, you know, it, it happens. But when it's black people, you know, it's just like, you need to crack down. You have the president basically calling for violence against protesters. Like, it's just a tragedy all around. What is the, what is uh, the, the role of Trump in this? I mean, I was like, I mean, I've, I've grown sort of hardened to his, his rhetoric in a way. I guess I'm ashamed to say, but his tweet overnight did take my breath away uh, for the first time in a while. I actually said that and I was like, wow, like, when I saw that, I, I, it was like there, there's a new we've, we've crossed some kind of new threshold here. One, I'm curious whether you guys thought that, but also, what are we supposed to do with him if in in the press in the coverage of this stuff? How central do you think he should be in this story now, or or is this, or, or do you think we give him too much by by putting him in the middle of it? Either of you. Um, I don't necessarily think he should be at the middle of it, but you can't ignore the fact that this is the highest office in the land. Yeah. This is the so-called leader of the free world. And this is his response to, um, you know, a man's death uh, in an American city at the hands of police whose tax dollars, you know, our tax dollars fund them. Mm-hmm. And his response to basically to a violent death is to encourage more violence. And that is telling um, about this administration, about how they view the sanctity of life when it comes to people Mm -hmm. of color, particularly Black people. It's immensely revealing. And so I don't think we can ignore it completely because there's a different, like these uprisings happened during the Obama administration. You know, we had the one in Mm -hmm. Ferguson, we had protests around the country organized around Black Lives Matter. The difference is you had Eric Holder, you had Mm -hmm. DOJ investigations, you had the president trying to calm the nation and assure people that we're going to take these things seriously. And you had the demilitarization in some cases of local police departments who had all this surplus military equipment, which is why you had tanks Mm -hmm. and, you know, rolling down the streets of Ferguson. It's this response, I'm, you know, terrified ultimately of what the federal response is going to be to this, mm-hmm. if there's a response at all, because often at times it feels like there's no one at the wheel yeah. when it comes to our executive branch, you know, it's like- Or he, makes it, or he, or he, or he is the sort of king of empty threats. Yeah. So it's, it's just a very scary time. So I don't think you can completely ignore it, but I don't think he should be the center of it. I agree. Um, I think- one of the dangers when when we think about how we frame our coverage of these things is that uh, you know we've we've had lots of conversations and there've been lots of pieces written about press obsession with Trump and about this sort of delicate balance between doing due diligence and treating the office that he occupies um, with a level of seriousness and so reporting on the things that he does while he's in office um, and also sort of becoming so fixated um, on those things at the expense of seeing, you know, the larger story here. And, you know, John also wrote about this in our newsletter this morning, which is that there are structural uh, problems that underlie everything that Donald Trump says in every press conference and on Twitter. Um, and I, and I, I worry and I wonder about, you know, with a story like this in Minneapolis, 
um, and and sort of Trump inserting himself in such an inflammatory way. And, you know, how do we go about treating it seriously without falling back into our old habit of turning the story into uh, one that is just about this man um, and allows everyone else, all of our readers uh, mm. to to sort of view this in that lens. Like mm. there's not a structural problem here. This is just the problem of Trump's America when in fact, mm. this is not just Trump's America uh, or the problem of Trump's America. You know, this is, this is just America. This is just what it is and what it's always been. Mm. Um, and I wonder about um, how we, how we are writing these stories um, and contributing to that very, very narrow lens. You know, Danielle brought up the sanctity of, of, Black Lives Lost. Um, I mean, it just reminds me of his, the fact that he just seems to be glossing over the coronavirus deaths and the disproportionate number of people of color who are dying from that disease. And I'm wondering how much these, these two storylines kind of mesh together at this point. I mean, clearly, you know, these deaths have happened and a response has arisen, um, but it can't, comes in the context of this sort of, this, you know, this mass pandemic that is that is just um, you know, decimating communities of color around the country. What is the relation between the two, do you think, at least, or if not in fact, at least in how it should be covered and how we should be thinking about it when we write about it? I think the fabric of Black America is informed by structural racism. And that's true whether it's a story of a public health crisis and how it impacts Black America or uh, a story about policing, the institution of policing and instances of um, police brutality and murder and how that impacts Black America. Um, And so I think that, you know, it's sort of the same story. And if you think about, you know, this is happening in Minneapolis where there is a long and documented and historic and recent history uh, Mm -hmm. of police violence. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, Minnesota is itself an extremely unequal state uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, wealth and health disparities. Um, and all of these things sort of work in tandem. And so when you think about the story of, you know, right now we're talking about George Floyd and what happened when he went to this convenience store and the shop owners called the cops. Um, but, you know, that story is related to the story of how COVID is impacting, you know, his family and his neighbors and his community in Minneapolis and in any city where Black people live across this country. Um, and I think it's an important, though, I think that it's an important connection to make because we have such a hard time in the press talking about structural inequality and inequity. Um, I don't think that we're particularly good at it. And, you know, even the way that the way that we cover current events is set up into beats where we keep everything siloed and separate. Mm-hmm. And that's just not how we, that's not how black people experience the world. It's not how anybody experiences the world and its inequities. Um, and so I do think that these that that these are these are related stories. Um, these are stories that can be explained by the same set of uh, structural inequity and wrong. Yeah, I agree with Alex. Like it has the same cause, and it's just a different effect. You know, one 
is about a deadly disease that is ravaging our community because of the health disparities that have historically existed between Black and white people in this country. And the other is related to the systemic racism that exists and, you know, and that has always existed in American policing um, and how an unfair and inequitable system where police officers bring their biases and their prejudices to work every day and essentially treat Black people that they interact with vastly different than they treat, you know, white people or other people um, when it comes to how they approach people, whether they escalate or de-escalate a situation. All of this is just, it's rooted in systemic inequality in this country. And unless you put that in that proper context, it's, you're just basically just playing whack-a-mole. Like, it's just like, oh, another mm-hmm. story has popped up. Mm-hmm. where a black person has been killed by the police. Isn't that interesting? And you're just like, mm-hmm. wait, let's unpack that. Let's like take a step back and look at the bigger picture of what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Danielle, um, you mentioned one of the solutions to doing this better is to employ, employ more people of color in newsrooms so that you bring these perspectives in that, um, from people who, who, who know what they're talking about. But do you have any other advice for journalists covering this moment about making sure that they don't view these as separate events? And even in terms of like, you know, when they're, when they're sitting down to craft these stories or when they're sitting down to think about how do we, you know, how do we kind of write about what's going on now? Like, what is, what is, a, what is a practical approach that could be helpful? I really feel like a lot of this could be prevented if people were just open-minded and willing to educate themselves about the history of race in this country. We have far too many people who don't have a fundamental understanding of the various movements that have taken place throughout American history involving people of color, particularly Black people, uh, fighting for equality. Um, Like, I can't say how many times I've read things that misinterpret what the civil rights movement was, what the nonviolence movement was, what Rosa Parks did, what MLK did, and then Mm -hmm. conflate it and try to chastise modern Mm -hmm. gay protesters, Black Lives Matter protesters. Like, why can't you be more like them when it's like, I'm doing, I am like them. I'm doing the exact same things that they did during the civil rights movement. You know, I'm organizing, I'm protesting. And when all else fails, you know, people take to the streets. Um, So it's, I can't overstress enough. It's just people need to educate themselves. The fact that so many Americans, including people in the media, walk around in ignorance about the histories of American citizens, because that's what Black people are. We are part of America. Our history is American history, and they Mm -hmm. just don't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. Thank you all so much for coming on. I so appreciate your time. Um, You can read Alex's work at CJR.org, including her recent piece about Amit Aubrey and Brianna Taylor, and you can read Danielle and her colleagues at The Root. Thank you both for coming. Thank you. Thank you. You can also stay up to date on what's going on in the world of media by subscribing to the CGR newsletter, The Media Today, which you can reach via our website at cgr.org. See you next week.